You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. From the heart of where innovation, money, and power collide, in Silicon Valley and beyond, this is Bloomberg Technology with Emily Chang. I'm Ed Ludlow in San Francisco, in for Emily Chang. This is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up in the next hour, a crypto sector shakeup. FTX founder Sam Bankman-Fried signing an option to buy crypto lender BlockFi, an exclusive conversation with SBF and why he thinks there are synergies between the two businesses. Plus, misinformation moment. One week on from the US Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade, doctors tell Bloomberg potentially deadly abortion advice is spreading online. And Tesla tests the EV makers expected to report quarterly production numbers this weekend. A hot streak of records is on the line as Shanghai shutdowns and supply chain snags lead Wall Street to cut forecasts. Let's continue the week. Let's switch to crypto. FTX signed an agreement with BlockFi today. The deal includes an option to purchase the crypto lender for as much as $240 million. Sam Bankman-Fried, co-founder of FTX, spoke exclusively with Bloomberg's Shanali Basak about how the deal and the companies will align. I think that there are a lot of ways that our products can work together and can mesh together um, in a way that's sort of mm-hmm. better than you know either would be independently. And, and I will also say that you know they've been working really productively with regulators on uh, you know building out uh, regulated uh, yield products and licensed yield products, uh, which which you know we're excited about and excited that they've been doing it in a regulated way. I think that's a healthy way to do it, and and I think that's going to serve them well, mm-hmm. um, you know, long term, um, and it's something that you know we're excited to work with as well. You know, uh, you had told Politico that FTX is looking for opportunities to bail out, you know, places where customers would otherwise be underwater. But are you worried here about moral hazard at all? That bailing out a company may not actually be what's best for the industry at large. It's a good question, and you know, and, and I'm guessing what you're getting at there is like. Does that bail out a company that really should have failed and and teacher is the wrong lesson to that company? Um, and and I think what I would say there's two things. First of all, I'm way more excited to bail out customers than shareholders, right? And so the focus of this is not how do we deliver as much shareholder value to troubled assets as possible, right? It's how do we protect customers? 
and I think those imply pretty different things. Um, uh, so that that's that's one thing that I'll say, and and I think that one of them is way more important for the ecosystem, and the other is the one that has the biggest moral hazard. Um, the other thing is that um, uh, uh, is that you know we are trying to find who were the responsible players who were building out you know a good business, you know had a sustainable model, and you know could use uh, short-term liquidity. Um, and, and, and that that could help protect customer funds fundamentally built, you know, a, 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 an, a, a, a real valuable uh, business that I think, um, you know, had something real to offer to customers rather than, you know, which companies honestly should never have existed, probably. And, um, and you know, as of today, you know, maybe we should just let, uh, let them sort of, uh, you know, die a quiet death. Joining me now is Bloomberg Shanali Basak for more. And I mean, Shanali, what strikes me is this is a guy who, who's just strengthening his grip on this industry, right? Talk us about talk to us about, I guess, the importance of this deal in the landscape. Yeah, it's, it is a really interesting deal because remember, there are other firms that have paused withdrawals. A lot of people talking about how BlackFi was one that, with the help of Sam Bankman-Fried and FTX, has been able to make it through and be there for their clients, even in the midst of these really tumultuous times. I want right. to point out also what's happening with Voyager because they are suspending certain operations and you do you, they have the withdrawal issue as well. And remember, another Sam Bankman-Fried entity had uh, lended them a credit line as well. So that question of moral hazard is a real one. Who will make it through and who won't? It's interesting on BlockFi as well. Like, have I slept through the last year? I thought this was a $3 billion company. Uh, this seems to value them at a much lower valuation. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you think about it, it went from $3 billion to potentially $1 billion, and now you have them uh, much lower, $400 million worth of a credit line, as well as that uh, money that you had been talking about here, $240 million with that option to purchase. And you right. think about it, and when we spoke to Sam, he really said opportunistic buying valuations were really a big reason here. But he also hinted that really some firms will just simply not get back to their former glory. Yeah, I think on the Bloomberg terminal, I'm seeing this guy's name over and over again. What did he have to say about m and In fact, why don't we just take a listen? Because you asked him directly about some recent reports on interest in Robinhood. Would we do a, a large acquisition if it did make sense and, and if all the parties were aligned on it? You know, we could in theory. Um, you know, we we have uh, you know a few billion on our balance sheet right now. We are profitable. Um, you know, we are able to further capitalize if we need to. I mean, no name check, but what's your takeaway? <laughs> yeah, I mean, the idea that they could buy something. He said we could buy something for billions of dollars, not $30 billion, but billions of dollars is certainly possible here. We talked about buy versus build because FTX has traditionally built before. Uh, of course, you know, Robinhood, fast growth company with a lot of employees under their employee base, and FTX runs really, really lean, Ed. And so does that really fit together at the end of the day? He has a lot of ambitions, remember. 
A firm like Robinhood, he also talked about potentially distressed crypto miners, but again, it's got to be a strategic fit. At the end of the day, when you take a look at what's happening between this potential Robinhood wanderlust, the BlockFi option to purchase, maybe crypto miners, the question at the end of the day is who does Sam Bankman-Fried want to be? Uh, and it's got to be more than JP Morgan. When you look at a company that is coming out of uh, this crypto winter, merging TradeFi and DeFi, and uh, looking to the future for, for what this new market structure could be under a new regulatory regime. Right. Bloomberg Shanali Basak, my good mate. Thank you. We'll see you later in the show. And crypto will also be in the minds of those next week in Sun Valley. A little road trip for us. Bloomberg will be there starting July 6th with a number of great guests, including SoFi's Anthony Noto, 23andMe CEO, and Wojcicki, Eventbrite's Kevin Hartz, and many others. You don't want to miss it. Today marks one week since the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, which allowed women to access an abortion if they needed one. In one week's time, medical professionals have told Bloomberg that they've seen an uptick in the number of social media posts promoting various herbs, tonics and other dangerous substances and not viable substitutes for abortion. For more on all of this, including social media's role in the conversation on abortion, I'm joined by Bloomberg's Alex Barinka, along with David Kirkpatrick, founder of Techonomy. Alex, I'm going to start with you. What have we learned from doctors? What is it that they're seeing and where are they seeing it? Yeah, and these doctors are, are kind of sounding the alarm um, a lot earlier, maybe because they are now used to this pattern. We have a, um, a health issue. We saw it with COVID. We saw it with baby formula. And we have social media, a place where people go to find the latest hack. Yeah. The problem is um, we're seeing some of these hacks, um, some of these at-home solutions start to bleed into really serious health issues like uh, lack of abortion care for women. So already uh, in less than a week, we have seen uh, at-home tonics, herbs, things that doctors Bloomberg talked to said are dangerous, potentially fatal. We've seen these posts and content pop up across TikTok, across Twitter, across Facebook and Instagram. So it's basically everywhere if you know where to look or if you just happen to be passively scrolling through your feed and have some of this, um, what doctors would call misinformation, pop up in your social media. Well, I get what you mean, right? When you're scrolling through Instagram, even when you're on Twitter, or any social media platform, you come across something that doesn't seem to be of any substance. It's, it's kind of packaged in a lighthearted way. David, how many times have we had this conversation about a, a number of topics? Are you surprised that the platforms weren't sort of more proactive in thinking about this kind of information and how it's being shared? That is an understatement. And as Alex points out, I mean, we all unfortunately have gotten used to this pattern pretty much whenever it comes to any kind of misinformation, because for, for several reasons, social media generally and Meta's companies in particular um, have designed their systems in a way that make it very hard for them to detect and remediate misinformation of any type. And then separately, they really have a disincentive to do so because they get revenue from eyeballs and attention and also from ads, many of which shouldn't be there in the first place. For example, you know, Meta allows 
prescription drug ads to go to anyone above 18 in the United States. They don't even have to do that. They could have set a much higher uh, limit for that. And, you know, prescription drug ads are only consumer directed in the United States and New Zealand of all developed countries. So, yeah. you know, we, we have a lot of problems. Alex, when Bloomberg was speaking to medical professionals, they raised an issue, which is that, you know, it's often easier to seek information or advice online than it is to book an appointment to go and see your practitioner or, or whatever. Can you explain the concerns that doctors had with that respect? Of course, and I can break it into a couple of groups. Let's say you are a, um, an individual in a state that still has access to abortion. It might take seven weeks to get in to see your primary care doctor. But if you are somebody who um, is seeking an abortion in a state where it is suddenly not available, you don't know your options, you don't know where to look, but you're used to you know, getting your advice from everything from how to style your outfit to you know, what the healthiest meal is uh, you can put on your dinner table, you're gonna turn to social media. It's there. It's passive, and these this information is kind of being packaged in this um, entertainment meets advice, um, kind of passively going through your eyeballs into your brain in a way that feels um, much with it feels like it has a lot more levity than the serious of this information. So um, you know, even if you're somebody who still has access and you see a, a quick fix for something that is a really serious health issue, you know, folks right. are used to getting this information in this way right now. Alex, I want to stick with you and move to another story. TikTok confirming that Chinese nationals will have some access to US user data. Can you explain what the latest is? I know this is a story you've been covering. Yeah, absolutely. So TikTok responded in a letter today to um, nine senators who had basically asked uh, TikTok a lot of questions that we are starting to hear a lot in regards to the company. Uh, who has access to U.S. users' data? Do any China employees have access to U.S. users' data? What about the Chinese government? And hey, what about the algorithm? Where does that fall? Uh, so there was a, a big report from BuzzFeed a couple of weeks ago. Senators sent a letter to them, and TikTok CEO came back today with the response basically clarifying and confirming that yes, some uh, employees in China do have access to publicly available data for TikTok users. This includes right. things like your videos, comments, but he's also saying the company is developing something called Project Texas. Basically, this is their solution that they're working with the US government to cordon off US users' data, but only specific US users' data. Um, the, the identifiers, the names, the addresses, things like that or what we can expect. So um, they're basically right. coming back saying, hey, this is where we stand. Look, this letter came through today. Uh, there are um, folks in the US government who are already coming back saying, this is not enough. Uh, I can mm -hmm. guarantee you, as we start to inch closer to things like the midterms and questions around um, the veracity of information mm -hmm. and is there influence from China on US voters start to sneak into, uh, the, into the ether here, these questions will continue to get louder from US yeah. uh, officials. David, your reaction to that, please. Well, while I seldom agree with anything Marsha Blackburn says, I have to say that <laughs> he was quoted by Alex in her story today saying that pretty much if you use TikTok, you should assume your data is in the hands of the Chinese government. And unfortunately, that is what a lot of us observers have recognized for a long time. The fact that TikTok's management is directly confirming that today, in effect, is, is what is really news here. 
So, you know, it amazes me that people aren't more concerned about this. And this is an area where I think these Republican Congress people and Republican FCC members are really rightly focusing on a real issue. David, I want to bring you some news just crossing the Bloomberg terminal. Google saying that it's going to begin deleting location history in its systems that it identifies as being personal information. It gives the example of certain medical facilities, for example, the change due to come into effect in the coming weeks. Facilities could include counselling centres or domestic violence shelters, abortion clinics, fertility centres. seems to be linked to, you know, search and maps and when one might be seeking a destination. What's your sense of how Alphabet and Google are handling data and privacy at this time? Well, I think that's very good news, and I'm really glad you told us that. Um, I think Google is handling data and, and privacy better than it used to, and I think it's feeling a lot of pressure from Apple in particular, uh, because Apple is so rigid about this and so principled about privacy. Uh, so I think it's great to see Alphabet and Google moving more firmly in the direction of, by default, trying to protect user data. That's really welcome. David, very quickly, just 20 seconds, give me your big tech outlook right now. What's the one thing you're watching? <laughs> Oh my gosh, uh, the, the exaggeration of the metaverse actually is the thing that I find the most uh, kind of satisfying. I think there is absurd overpromising going on right now about where the kind of consumer internet is going in the near term. There's no way it's going to be metaverse in anytime soon. So I find that amusing. There's plenty of other things going on. I mean, obviously the stocks are not great op opportunities for the short term because right. they got so valued, so highly valued. Couldn't resist. Sorry. Techonomy founder David Kirkpatrick and my mate Bloomberg's Alex Barinka. Good to see you. Thanks to you both. And just coming up on Tuesday, we'll have FCC Commissioner Brendan Carr on the show where we'll ask him about TikTok. Coming up, Spotify's bet on podcasting rather than music streaming. Has it paid off? We'll discuss. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at cuttereconomicforum.com.
Let's take a look at Spotify. The music streaming platform's stock is down almost 60% this year, even after Spotify's move into podcasts made it the world's biggest audio service. The idea, podcasting offers Spotify exclusive material, forcing other tech giants to carry its service and creating a revenue stream music labels can't touch. So why is it in trouble? Let's break it all down with Bloomberg's Lucas Shaw, who wrote about this in quite a lot of detail in a fantastic Business Week piece. The strategy working? You know, I'd say it's a, a mixed bag right now. It's, it's working in the sense that more and more people are, wa- are listening to podcasts on Spotify. About 85, 90 million of, of Spotify's users listen to podcasts. The revenue that it generates from podcasting is growing at a, at a big clip. But Spotify has spent a lot of money, more than a billion dollars so far. And you spend all that money, and podcasting makes up about 7% of listening and 2% of revenue. And they've done a lot of expensive deals with big-name talent that hasn't gone anywhere. And so right. there are a lot of people inside and outside the company who are questioning where some of that money is going. At the heart of any good story is, is a name, a person. And for Spotify, that's Dawn Ostroff, right? What's, what's her role been, and how successful has she been? So she's the chief content officer. She also oversees the, the advertising business, a longtime TV executive who didn't have a lot of background in music or in podcasting before she joined Spotify. You know, she's, the, in, a, in a lot of ways, the architect of the strategy. There are some people who work for her who were very instrumental in it as well. But she, in particular, has been a, a big driver of these deals with big-name talent, uh, you know, the, the Obamas at Higher Ground, the Royals, some filmmakers, some social media celebrities, Kim Kardashian. And there have not been a lot of, of big shows that come out of those deals. The big names are important, right? I'm thinking about Joe Rogan, shout out Draymond Green show, been a big one for me over the last few months, the Obamas. What's the path forward? Are they just going to have to sign up more names to keep this going? You know. I- a lot of it is going to come down to how big the advertising business can get and how much Spotify can start to replicate uh, you know, a, a service like YouTube. The, the, those big name shows are really great for getting people in and for marketing. But the core and, uh, of that Spotify business is supposed to be the mass of podcasts. You know, they host 4 million podcasts, give or take, right now. Right. They said that by 2025, I think they want to have like 50 million creators on the platform. That is a lot of people. And they figure if they have that many people posting, they will just kind of hoover up all the demand and they'll be able to sell ads against all these, all these users. And their ad business is growing, but it's still only about 15% of the overall pie. All right, Bloomberg's Lucas Shaw out in LA, all things Spotify. Thank you very much. Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. I'm Ed Ludlow in San Francisco. Tesla ends the week in the green, but it's been slipping, making it one of the worst weeks of the year. This is the company is still dealing with delivery issues with its Shanghai factory remaining in lockdown. For more on all of this, I'm joined by Bloomberg's Sean O'Kane out in Austin. Sean, the expectation we get quarterly delivery figures this weekend. What are you looking for? I mean, the consensus seems to be in the high 200,000s, maybe around 260,000 or so, which if that's the case, we're talking about a quarter that is about uh, 40,000 or so delivery short of around where the last two quarters were. Uh, And Elon Musk at the end of Q1 had said that they expected basically a flat quarter to quarter uh, change or, or no change. So if there is a drop, then we can see pretty much just how much we should attribute to the Shanghai lockdowns and the trouble that they've had over at that plant. So so what is the latest on what Tesla's dealing with, right? We haven't heard from Elon Musk for a little while. He's not sent any tweets. But in Shanghai, things have been tough. 
Uh, I mean, their story is still about growth as it kind of always has been. I mean, they're set up to open or have already sort of opened new factories, both here in Austin and in Berlin. Uh, Musk recently made uh, in comments in an interview at the end of May, uh, made the, the claim that both of these new factories are money furnaces. And really what he means by that is, you know, he said they're losing billions of dollars right now. The point he was trying to make there is that as they scale up production and try to get from 100 units a week or a thousand vehicles a week, they're going to be spending far more money on uh, building out those factories than they are making any money back from them. And, you know, I, I think a lot of people looked at that as possibly negative. The thing yeah. to keep in mind with that is that, like, that's just the nature of it. And it's not going to slow Tesla down. Tesla's actually still working on expanding, uh, especially the factory here in Texas, even though it doesn't have production up to the level that he wants it at yet. Well, let's talk about that. For those that don't know, Sean is out in Austin. He's awesome. If you don't follow him on Twitter, at SOKane1, I work with him every single day. Talk to me about Austin. Like, what is the grand master plan for Austin? What it, how has this Tesla factory changed that city? Uh, I mean, right now, it still feels very much like the times that I went to uh, outside Reno when the Gigafactory was still in its first few years there, the original one, where, uh, you know, Certainly, you see a lot of Tesla cars here more and more every day, but it is now a topic of conversation. It's the kind of thing that it, it's an easy conversation to strike up with people who have lived here and worked here. Everybody has a different opinion on it, um, but it is it is something that is sort of, you know, it is a very large facility, but it's also something that looms sort of metaphorically in people's minds now that it's up and running, uh, even right. sort of in a, in a small volume. So it's it's something that is changing what is going on here i think the bigger question about like what elon musk actually wants to do in austin still isn't answered although we've seen some reporting including from our own sarah mcbride at bloomberg news about all the different things that he right. wants to do with other companies like the boring company here i mean he has a lot more plans than he's really publicly led on to for this city right bloomberg sean o'kane awesome thank you very much let's go from public market pain to private markets gain. It's been a wild week in the world of venture capital. Despite recession fears, volatility, new funds are popping up around the world. One report, Sequoia Capital, is trying to raise 2.25 billion from investors for two new funds in Canada. CIBC Innovation Banking launched a new $1.5 billion venture fund. And around the world, money seems to be flowing to earlier stage startups, but deal counts are down. That's a lot to take on board. Joining us to discuss, Kathy Gao, partner at Sapphire Ventures. I mean, the world's a bit crazy right now. But you, as a venture capitalist, how are you seeing things? Well, first of all, it's so great to be back here, Ed. Awesome. Um, wow, it's July 1st, right? Uh, just think we about made it. We made it. You know, the past six months have been the worst six months, as you reported on earlier, in the stock market for over 50 years. There's a lot of turmoil in the markets. And I always say this, that uncertainty is a foe of the markets. From my seat in the private markets, we haven't fully seen the impact of the effect on the public markets flow into the private markets. That's a good point. We've got this chart that looks at deal count, basically, the number of rounds or venture-backed startups bringing in fundraising. And between the first quarter and second quarter, there is this dip. You know, we see it on our screens, particularly pronounced in early stage. But there still seems to be money flowing to early stage. I mean, where are you looking right now in the world? Is now a great time to fund young startups or are you looking at later stages? 
That's a very complicated situation. For me personally, I focus on the Series B all the way up to pre-IPO stage. Right. When we think about what's been happening in the markets, all this volatility, everything from you know, record high interest rates to rising inflation and even geopolitical risk, we saw that impact in the public markets. The next group of assets to be affected are the very late stage private markets, companies like Klarna and Instacart. And then it's kind of my stage. My stage is a little bit frozen right now because on one hand, a lot of companies raise a lot of money in 2021. They might have 30 months of runway. They don't need to absolutely raise now. On the other hand, investors don't know where the valuation is going to settle quite just yet. Why would you bring you up on that point, down rounds. You know, we've seen a few. What's your read on that? It's not necessarily a bad thing, but what's your take? It's definitely not necessarily a bad thing. I think it's inevitable given some of the run-ups that we saw in 2021. And it might feel really bad, you know, with all the headlines we're seeing around layoffs and everything like that. But this is an opportunity for companies to reevaluate what they're actually worth and prepare themselves for future rounds that they may have to raise. I want to ask you about opportunities, but we just showed some of your portfolio companies on the screen. What are you telling your founders? You know, what advice are you giving to them if there is a recession looming about how they manage their businesses, about their cash? We're telling them, you know, in any times of uncertainty, there's so many things they can't control, but what can they do to gain ball control, right? To control their own destiny. So the top two things are, number one, cash is king in a recession. Keep a very, very sharp eye on cash. And a related matter, really focus on efficiency. Take a hard look at your go-to-market and overall burn efficiency and make changes if you have to. And also, it's an opportunity to play offensive. You know, we always talk about some of these great companies that's that why were I like forged. you you always come in with a smile on your face you're you're optimistic about opportunity where do you see the opportunity oh I'm very very optimistic I mean at a high level we're very very bullish on general cloud-based SaaS I think the transformation to cloud is still in its early innings and there are many pockets that I am focused on and my firm Sapphire is focused on that I think are going to be doing well regardless of any market you know things like cybersecurity right always going to be a hot topic. Things like future of work, things like healthcare and how technology can transform healthcare. With the greatest respect, cloud, SaaS, cybersecurity, those things always come across in, in a lot of abstract. You know, they're present in our everyday lives. How do you determine what's a real company, one that's product is going to thrive with those things being important to corporate America, the, the world? Yeah, we look at two things very, very closely. Um, the first one being, how do customers actually use a product, and do they love the product? This is where being a later stage investor is a little bit easier than a super early stage investor, because the companies I'm looking at, they have real customers. So we spend a lot of time talking to the customers and understanding, hey, is this solution really solving an important pain point for you? Right. And importantly, are you willing to pay for this solution? The second thing we look at is a proxy of how strong the product market fit is. And that's how efficiently can you sell your product. Very quickly, are you optimistic about the second half of 2022? Um, I think it's going to take some time for the changes to flow through the market. I think we're in for some hard times ahead. I don't know if it's going to be one quarter, two quarters, three quarters or more. But again, my message to everyone is this is an opportunity to look inwards, you know, get your house in shape and be ready for the future. Awesome. Sapphire Ventures, Kathy Gao, thank you. Such a pleasure to have you here.
Coming up, crypto lawsuits from deceitful marketing to pump and dump schemes, why there's an uptick in retail investor lawsuits and what the app called Do Not Pay wants to do about it. More on that next. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop. Customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. How do you take on a crypto lawsuit? People are dying to know. Even VC investor Chamath Palavataya referenced one Bloomberg article on the battle of an investor with Binance as it tried to sue the crypto platform. Take a listen. Lost $1.2 million who wanted to file a lawsuit, and they have every right to do that, um, couldn't even find the corporate entity to, to actually file this lawsuit against. Crypto's generated more than 200 class action lawsuits and private litigation cases, up more than 50% since the start of 2020, according to law firm Morrison Cohen, which tracks the activity. Our next guest, Joshua Browder, CEO of Do Not Pay, a legal services chatbot that wants to help the average crypto investor get their money back, along with our crypto contributor, Shanali Basak, back with us. Joshua. Thank you for having me. Answer that question. How do you tackle a lawsuit like that? So everyone talks about class actions, but in all of these big companies like Celsius's Terms of Service, they say that you can't actually sue them in federal court. But there's a loophole which says that you can sue them in small claims court. And so what my company does is we automate small claims court lawsuits. And so it's almost fitting that the answer to decentralized crypto fraud is thousands of small claims decentralized lawsuits. So Joshua, I've been excited to speak to you because you know that I went to law school and yes. I was never cut out to be an attorney. Just bring me back to basics. Shanali's laughing in New York, I know she is. Bring me back to basics. What is a chatbot lawyer? So Do Not Pay's mission is to empower the consumer to fight back. We've been operating for about six years, taking on big companies like Equifax and Comcast. When United doesn't refund your money, consumers come to us. And recently we decided, why not help consumers get justice against these crypto companies right. that are freezing people's money like Celsius? 
Well, why have you chosen to move over to crypto companies? Obviously, there are a lot of them right now and many of them that are freezing withdrawals at this point in time. And if you're a crypto customer uh, that is part of that pain, it's not like you have a lot of money left over to spend on a lawsuit like this. So why have you moved over from other forced arbitration clauses into, into this world? So Small Claims Court is an amazing tool. Um, it can get consumers between ten dollars and $25,000. And it's a very easy process. A judge will often side with a consumer in their local jurisdiction just because they feel bad for them. And so if Celsius doesn't show up to all these Small Claims Court lawsuits across the country, the consumer wins by default. And so because it's such an easy process, it only takes about a month or two. And it allows the consumer to get justice uh, before these companies declare bankruptcy, which is looking very likely. What's the likelihood of really recouping funds here? And how costly do you think it could be for a firm like Celsius? So Celsius has to send someone in every single case, even if it's for $10,000. So, so Do Not Pay has initiated over 1,500 lawsuits against Celsius in different parts of the country, even in rural towns. They have to send a lawyer just to defend themselves. And in my opinion, I don't think they will, and the consumers will win. So even an average of $10,000 a lawsuit, um, these, these small claims lawsuits are going to cost them millions. Um, but these are small retail investors who are getting their money back. And once a judgment is gotten in small claims court, you're actually at the front of the line in a bankruptcy proceeding. So it's very good that small retail investors can be ahead of the institutional investors if things really go bad with these big platforms. Joshua, can we talk about Twitter? Yes. I spend a lot of time on Twitter. You spend quite a lot of time on Twitter. Yes, I'm addicted to Twitter. I'm not going to go as far as to say I'm addicted, but there's a lot of tweeting about cryptocurrencies yeah. from very well-known people, Elon Musk probably being the easiest example, yeah. through to accounts with very few users, but markets seem to move on tweets. Yes. What's your take on that? I think everything you say on Twitter is, has to be uh, legal and everything and the same standards as everything you say in real life. People think that just because it's an online platform, they aren't held to the same standard, but they really are. And we're seeing this in crypto fraud. We've used tweets in the past in small claims lawsuits, and it's the same with moving markets and SEC violations and things like that. Well, that's a fascinating question, too, about tweets and where it falls in regard to uh, customers getting money back, any, any distortions in the markets. There was a lot of questions about even some of the advertising some of these crypto firms had done prior to pausing withdrawals. I mean, what type of um, evidence does that create for the retail investor in terms of being encouraged to put their money into something that was not going to work out later? Well, if it seems too good to be true, it probably is. And a lot of these um, platforms weren't advertising the risks uh, of getting a 20% uh, interest rate properly. They were saying things like, your money is safe and secure. You can get it back very quickly. And even though they buried in the terms of service, they have all of these special clauses. That's really not clear written consent um, based on like FTC guidelines. And so if you're not clear with the consumer, you will face all of this litigation and regulatory problems if things go badly. We're seeing a pretty ugly chart on the screen. Bitcoin, year to date, one year, it's down a lot. That's been a part of the story. I'm going to use Shanali's favorite word, regulation. You reckon that we'll see some more regulation? 
in this space? I think we will. I think so many people will lose so much money that everyone is going to write to their congressman, do not pay also does that uh, to get as much regulation as possible. Be more specific there. What exactly is Do Not Pay asking for for regulation here, especially because you know there is a sense that the SEC might come down harder on the enforcement side than it will on the actual regulatory side in creating new rules? So all of these crypto companies generally have money transmitter licenses, which is a very low standard of regulation. What they're actually doing is something called being a broker-dealer. And so at the very least, uh, we would want them to all be licensed as broker-dealers versus money transmitters. And I think that would lead to more disclosures and consumers feeling like they're better protected. And there are lots of legitimate companies like Coinbase who would probably go in that direction, but less legitimate players like Celsius that are speculating with funds um, might not survive. All right, Joshua Browder, CEO of Do Not Pay, and Bloomberg's Shanali Basak, thank you to you both. More news in the App Store ecosystem. Google reached an agreement with US developers that will let consumers subscribe to services outside the company's Play Store. This after Apple made a similar deal last year with small developers. Bloomberg's Scoop Dog German joins us for more on this. Mark, how does this impact Google? <laughs> Ed, thanks for having me. Well, it doesn't really impact Google that much, right? So what they're going to start allowing, just like Apple has allowed starting recently, is they're going to allow, if you're a third-party developer, to point users to the web, essentially, to subscribe to your services, right? I still think a lot of people, though, are going to want to subscribe to services within the actual apps themselves, which then they still have to use the Google Play processing engine, which then will give Google a percentage there, right? So I think most consumers are not going to want to go to the web to sign up for applications. So I don't really think it's going to hurt Google uh, long term at all. Obviously, a $90 million payout is probably an hour's worth of revenue for Google, so that's not really going to hurt them elsewhere. They also decided that they're going to keep that 15% revenue share fee long term. That's for developers that make uh, up to $2 million per year on the Google Play Store. They never really said they would get rid of it, but at least they now have in writing as part of the settlement they're not going to get rid of it. So you're not going to see that 15% go up to 20% or back to 30% at any point soon. So that is an interesting uh, little you know, piece of the pie right there. Right. It's, that's the kind of business side. This is about consumer choice, right? Draw the parallel with Apple. What has the difference been since Apple made that same move last year? Yeah, so right now, Apple and Google, in terms of their App Store distribution and their policies, they're nearly at an identical point. The only difference is, is that Apple's 15% program, where they charge a developer 15% off the cost instead of 30%, that's only up to a million dollars in sales. Google's is going to be up to $2 million of sales, so it's about double. So that's really you know, the loan holdout big difference. You're seeing app removal transparency reports from both companies now. You're seeing the ability from both companies now to allow developers to advertise lower pricing from outside the Google Play Store and the Apple App Store. You're seeing this idea where they can go to the web to sign up for subscription services. You see that happening on both platforms. So they're really on equal footing right now. In terms of consumer behavior, do we see any material effect? Like, has it made consumers go out and, and make different choices than they would have otherwise had to make when they were forced to stay within those platforms? You know, I think consumers only really care if they're going to be paying more money or, or less money. 
right? If Netflix is charging $10 a month if you sign up through their app, or if they're charging $10 a month if you go to sign up through their website, if I'm just a consumer, I'm going to just sign it through the app because it's much easier, right? Apple and Google already have my billing information on hand. I don't need to go and make an account and sign up online and input my credit card information again, right? So from a consumer choice perspective, I don't really think that's you know changing much. I think developers are need to adjust their pricing and, and tell consumers, hey, if you go to the web and input your credit card information through the web and you go through that process, we're going to charge you $7 a month instead of $10 a month. But if pricing is equal on both platforms, I think any you know normal consumer is going to go right directly right. to the App Store or the Google Play Store. All right. Bloomberg's Mark Gurman out in LA. Thank you. That does Thank it you. for this edition of Bloomberg Technology. Wall Street Week is up next with my colleague David Weston. Next week, Bloomberg and me will be in live in Sun Valley, Idaho, where media moguls, billionaires, and some of the biggest names from tech, media, and business will converge on July 6th. We'll bring you live reports from the ground and interviews with some of the NTs, attendees with SoFi CEO Antinoto, 23ME CEO Anwajiki, Eventbrite's Kevin Hartz, and many others. You definitely don't want to miss it. We'll be there. Tuesday onwards. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.